Um, it's uh, strange, really, isn't it? You, you, you agree to do two preachers on the trot, and then work takes off, and uh, you think, how on earth am I going to manage to do everything? And yet, I keep getting reminded that it's, if I give you my words, they'll, they might at best amuse you, but what God wants to do is he wants to talk through me. That doesn't sound weird, like some booming voice. This is the voice of God through John. No, seriously, though, there's no point in preaching, is there, unless God speaks. You know, when, when um, God spoke through the prophets long ago, people may not have listened at the time, but we've got it written down, what he wanted to have written down, and it's lasted, some of it, 4,000 years. Um, I've not really got the faith that he's going to use me that greatly, but I do have faith that because God loves you, because he's intimately concerned with every detail of your life, that he will use me. So thanks to Colin and Neil for praying for me. Um, We're now entering the fourth stage of um, our run through the Lord's Prayer. In the second week, Ben made mention that his aim or his desire, or put another way, he would see it as successful this series as successful is if his prayer life changed through it and if our prayer life corporately changed through it. And he also meant within that, not just as a body of the church, but each as individuals. And I thought, when I heard that, I listened to it on the internet and uh, I thought, yes and amen. I want my prayer life changed. I don't know about you, but even my best times of prayer, I just feel fail so, or fall so far short of what they could be. Do you? Relate to that at all. Both relationally and in power. I feel I've got so much to learn just about communicating with God, let alone wielding the sword of prayer, if you could put it like that. So this, for me, doing these preaches is a a voyage of discovery. And um, if you want to learn something, if you want to study something, then do a preach. Because it really makes you study. I think I could probably spend all week long studying. (laughs) Which those of you who know me historically would wonder about that. Quick recap then. On week one, which was Pete's talk, we we learnt about who God is. His Father. Um, We learnt what our response should be. I say we learnt. We were told learning is a process. On week two, we saw that uh, the next stage of this prayer is a call for God's rule and reign in the earth to increase. And Ben explored that. On week three, we saw that the prayer of thy will be done actually involves us in that. It's not abdication, as I may mention. It's actually... Um, a release, uh, a permission, if you like, if we, if we have, as, as creatures of choice can put it that way, saying to God, um, like Isaiah did, here am I, send me. So all those three things are basically asking God to increase his own glory, um, increase his rule and reign, increase his presence in the earth which seems strange, as though his presence could be any less. And yet the recognition is twofold. One is that we recognize that God's rule and reign is the best 
for this earth, the very best. Secondly, it catches us up into a right way of thinking. Praying these things first um, catches us up into a right way of thinking. So we've got our minds in place. Then Jesus, you know, he's talking this through and he he gives us three requests, which are fantastic, isn't it? And often I I tend to major on these requests more than I do on the first bits. If I start my prayer life, it's so easy to say, Lord, will you help me, as a primary sentence, rather than, God, you are great. Thank you that you're my father or anything like that. Again, am I rare that I would... Find it easier to put a request before God than I would to give him praise? Is that common? That's common. And yet it would seem that Jesus wants us to get a mindset change, as he so often does in what he's talking about. Different cultures have different uh, needs, different focuses, different um, responses. The funny thing is that Jesus' words are transcultural. Our culture in England, in the Western world, is very much work-focused. Would you agree? Um, Dave Devonish used an illustration recently when he was talking to a a few of us. And uh, he said that in another culture, it's radically different. He used the example of going to a, a work meeting. So you've got a meeting arranged and you're due to be there at a certain time. If on the way you meet a friend in this culture, they would understand if you say, great to see you, haven't time to chat now, I've got a meeting. That would be considered culturally correct. In, I think it was Pakistan, wasn't it? It was really something like Pakistan. In, In a culture like that, where it's more relational, if you met a friend, particularly if you hadn't seen them for some time in the street on your way to this meeting, that would be culturally unacceptable you would be expected to relate with them, to share, ask them in detail how they were, catch up on their family to the nth degree. He said, if you were then an hour or two hours late for your meeting, it will be acceptable for you to say, I'm sorry I'm late, I met so-and-so on the way here, I haven't seen them for some time. Which to us is like, but that's just wrong. That's a Joe Petchism. That's just wrong. You see, we have a difficulty in in understanding another culture. Yet Jesus' words here are transcultural. They apply to us in our culture with some changes. They apply to um, an Indian or a Pakistani in their culture with some changes. I.e., what I mean by that is with some change necessary on our lives and their lives. Jesus is not seeking that culturally we should all be one, I don't think but he is seeking that we all should be heavenly minded first. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 6, where we've been reading from for some time. We've read through the Lord's Prayer um, twice now. Having read through it, we get to the point where um, Jesus is on to the request and he says, this, if I can just find it. I should have put a marker in there before, but I put so many markers in the Bible, I think that one fell out. But even I can count up to six, so that's okay. Okay, let's just begin reading at the, at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer again. 
Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's at verse 9 in chapter 6 of Matthew. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. You've gone from the infinite, from the massive, from the... uh, cosmic, if you like, down to the personal. It almost seems to me like a jarring leap. And yet, we're unable to concentrate on God's will if we've got other things cluttering our minds. How many times have you said in your marriages or or, or one to another or even to yourself, I just haven't got time. I haven't got time. I've got so much to do, I haven't got time. How many times have you, you um, those of you who work, had to phone up and say, I'll be home late, I've got to just finish what I'm doing? And those of us that are self-employed, I'm afraid, probably do it rather more. And particularly concreting days are the worst for me. Kitchen fitting, fitting for plumbers, so I hear. But um, concreting days, I'll be home at six. Six o'clock comes, I'll be home at eight. <laughs> Remember that, Pete? Concreting your house. <laughs> I look up to see. We, we're supposed to be four of us laying this concrete, and there's two of us there. And uh, I, I look up, and I see Pete, and he's worked all day there on this concreting, screeding across this concreting and floating it across. And I see him there with his head in the concrete. <laughs> and I said, we must, have, we must have something to eat. What, it must be lunchtime. We looked at our watches, and it was five o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> but such is the way of our lives. Now, if we read further on, In Matthew, down to verse 19, Jesus starts an explanation of this part of the passage. He says this, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where vermin and and moths do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in just to steal, in case you hadn't heard it the first time. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If the eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. If your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now that verse there seems to be almost like, you almost would expect a sermon to be preached differently on that verse. And if you read it out of context, you can't believe that it's actually in that same run of communication. And yet, looking at it, I know that my eyes are dimmed, my spiritual eyes are dimmed when they are cloaked with worry about providing for my daily, day, daily needs, day-to-day needs, I was going to say, I've got the two muddled up, day-to-day needs, or with things that are in the future. Will I be able to pay the rent this month? Um, do we need an operation for this illness? All sorts of things. Now, when Jesus talks about, um, I should make the, the point, when he talks about give us this day our daily bread, the understanding and the inference is all our daily needs, not just bread. Not even just bread and jam. Not even just bread, butter and jam. But all our daily needs. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God or material, um, both God and money, or material wealth. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat and drink, or about your body, what you will wear. 
Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not reap or do not sow or reap. I think I'm slightly dyslexic today. Or store away in barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Um, I have a relative who's um, an expert worrier. You know, you get, you get black belts of judo, which is a black belt in worrying. If, if anybody wants to learn how to worry, you, you go and study under the master to the extent that um, one day I went in there and I said, oh, you, look, you, look, you look bothered, um, um, Geraldine. We call her Geraldine because that's not her real name. Uh, <laughs> I will instantly forget that. You look bothered, Geraldine. What's the matter? He said, I can't think what I should be worrying about. Actually, that's the very place Jesus wants us to get to. We can't think what we should be worrying about. But not worrying about what we should be worrying about. I tell you, why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field which is here today, and thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith. What a rebuke. You of little faith. So do not worry, saying, what should we eat? What should we drink? What should we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Wow. And you know what? In praying this prayer, we've already done the first bit. We've already got our minds focused on the kingdom of heaven. We're already thinking, what can I do? If we prayed this prayer through correctly, I would say, I lay before you. So we're in the place where we're ready to ask, Lord, I have these needs. And I have to, for the worry's sake, I have to um, identify the needs. You know, sometimes worry gets to be a whirlpool, doesn't it, of different things. And you can't think what you're worried about. It just becomes a tangled bird's nest of indiscriminate, all-consuming worry. Maybe that's just a particular mindset. I have to pull out a thread. I, I, I've, I almost picture myself as like with a bowl of spaghetti, pulling out a thread and thinking, oh, it's that one. Lord, I don't know what to do about this. It's actually not as big as I thought it would be. Would you please take care of it? Put it aside. And then the next one and so on and so forth. Um, Times when I don't remember to do that, the worry can be very life-controlling, can't it? I think this calls into, um, into our minds a question. It was very popular when I first became a Christian for people to say, I've decided to live by faith. Jack in their jobs and then sponge off everybody else. Or, if they were slightly more spiritual than that, jack in their jobs and just pray and let God provide. I've come to the conclusion that it's very rarely a person's call to jack in your job and just ask God to provide. There are certain people who are called to do that. But it's rare. 
we, um, Neil particularly has been at great pains over the years that I've known him to get people to realize that there's a holistic approach to the kingdom of God that includes work. When we're at work, we are either ignoring the kingdom of God or we are extending it by being Christians in the workplace. It's part of our lives. I don't think we're called in this passage to give up work. I don't think we're called to be irresponsible. I don't think this is a call not to try and operate with our, um, correctly with our finances. Otherwise, I think perhaps our brains would be perhaps slightly smaller. Our emotional ability would be slightly smaller. They say that a parrot, so an African grey parrot, has got a brain the size of a walnut. And uh, it's the most intelligent bird there is, probably one of the most intelligent forms of life second to us that there is. I don't really know. <laughs> it's the fact that, that they've got strong beaks and they can mimic things. But uh, when you think that God has given us intellect, reasoning, the ability to choose good from evil, I think he wants to use those things. It's part of his relationship with us that we have to learn how to use those things to his glory. And the same comes with provision. He wants us to do our level best. I heard someone say um, in another situation, I think it was a prayer situation, he was saying, I'll pray like there's no other answer and I'll work like there's no other answer. When the two are in balance, there is success. In Romans 8, Romans 8, by now it is covered in dirt on your, in your Bibles, creased and marked. Romans 8 is almost falling out of your Bibles because of its much leafed quality. We keep referring to Romans 8, or I do, because I love it. In verse 31 it says this, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not, along with him, graciously give us all things? Fantastic. Fantastic. But is it trustworthy? Paul was a man, the Apostle Paul who wrote Romans, is a man who knew suffering. There was a man who could answer the questions, is God honourable? Am I doing it? Am I going to let him down and therefore um, renege on the agreement and therefore cause it to fail? What other questions are there? Perhaps there's only two. Is God going to fail? Is he dishonourable? Does he exist? All that sort of thing. Or am I going to fail? Perhaps there's only two things. Paul could answer those two because he'd been there and he tried it out. You know, in one place he says, I've, I've suffered, um, uh, I, I've, I've experienced plenty and I've experienced nothing. I've experienced um, lots of food. I've experienced hunger. I've experienced cold, heat. I've been whipped. Um, I've been hated. Uh, I'm falsely accused. I've been uh, um, set, put in prison. All these things that which you might say, Looks like God failed, doesn't it? Maybe there is no God. 
And yet, at the end of those things, he then says, God has supplied all my needs. And he then confidently reiterates the fact that he has put his whole trust on God. His secret, and as, is that his whole focus was to see what God wanted done in this earth, done to the best of Paul's ability. Does that make sense? But I'm not a Paul, you say. If in my life I achieve only a fraction of the things that God wants to do in my generation, that will be enough, provided others do the same. And we talked before about God, is God limited to us doing his will? You know, are we literally his hands and feet, as one might put it? You know, hasn't, hasn't he got another way to do it? In some things, he chooses not to. In many things, God does not depend on us. For instance, I breathe. The air is there. I stand firmly on the earth because God wills it to be so, that the earth should support me. He doesn't ask me to have any involvement in that, but a lot of things he does. Jesus was the preeminent example of this, um, relying on God for his provision so that he had the focus of what to do. Now, we know that Jesus was a carpenter, but if, like me, you read the Gospels, you might be forgiven for thinking that he just wafted along. In fact, all the films seem to show him as this feeble, slightly um, effeminate chap. And yet, he was a builder. You know, he was strong. He must have been strong. There was no machinery to use in those days. The houses may have been smaller. They may have been rock, mud, and timber overlaid with mud roofs. But they required strength. They required physical input. So when he, he talked about um, provision, he knew what it meant. He wasn't somebody that, that merely lived on handouts. If he did that through the last three years of his life, which I have no information on, he certainly, I would say, didn't do it the previous 30-odd years of his life. I would suggest, and from what little we know of him and his father and his mother, that there were many opportunities in Jesus' life for worry about where the next meal would come from. He was talking from experience. Oh, you say, their culture was different. No, that does not apply. Our culture, yes, it's different. We have worries based on the same things. We have more things stored up. That's our problem. We still need to eat. We still need protecting from the elements. We still need clothes to wear, although you might think that was not the case, having been on holiday to Corfu. We hired a pedalo and uh, we pedaled, pedaled across to a, 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 um, a beach. And I don't know what I was thinking of. I suppose I wasn't really looking. And Fergus swims well. I don't swim hardly at all. And Sam was pedaling. And, and so Fergus and I decided to jump in and swim to the shore. So we got within depth. We turned around and said, take a photo. And Sam said, (laughs) at which point we turned around. (laughs) Gosh, (laughs) cloudy up there. (laughs) There was more naked bodies on the beach than clothes, I think. (laughs) I don't know where we went to. (laughs) But we enjoyed it. (laughs) But clothing's necessary, isn't it? in our culture as well as others. We just think because we have insurance policies, because we have food in the freezer, which will last a month, 
Because we pay um, our mortgage monthly and they'll give us so many months of deferral if we can't pay it, um, and we've also got insurance policies for that, we think differently. The culture you live in does affect how you think. You can't odds it, you can't avoid it. You can't even successfully opt out of it unless you go to a different culture. It's impossible, I would say, successfully to live a different culture within, within this one, long term. Jesus' words apply to our culture. That's why it has the bit about watch what you store up and where you put it. Watch where your heart is. Now that is more our difficulty, I would say, than it is for a third world culture. We don't worry so much about food. We will, in perhaps 20, 30, 100 years' time, in this country, we will worry about where our food comes from. It's common sense. We build on all our good land. We're a fertile country. We demand that unfertile countries grow all our food and we ship it in. We know that oil reserves are running low. At the moment, we don't have an alternative. It's very, very likely, this isn't a certainty, but it's very, very likely that air transport will diminish significantly. It's very likely, too, that um, various terrorist um, threats will diminish that considerably. Our food will diminish. I'm sorry, sorry to frighten you, but it's as well to be aware of these things. Human beings, by fallen nature, are very short-term thinkers. We think at most for our lifespan. And there are one or two men who rise up with a vision to think further. Don't take this as gospel this last bit. That is my view. But I think it will happen. It's not gospel. But I think it inevitable that we will be shaken out of our complacency. I don't see that as a good thing, to be honest. I really don't. But God, if we pray, will use it. In conclusion, we need to remember who we're dependent on all the time. I wish, I said last week, I wish I did this every day. I wish I could stand here and say, I've got this sussed. I wake up every morning and I say, Lord God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you're doing. Go for it, God. Thank you that you're my father. And Lord, I love your majesty. And would you please give me this, this, and this, and this. I wish I did that every day. I'm afraid I don't. Some people do, and I'm, I, I, I'm working towards getting to that. But we do need to work towards getting to that daily recognition that we are dependent on God. We need to be free from the consuming concern that provision, i.e. seeking provisions, can engender. Where will my next wage check come from? Um, I expect that's probably something that self-employed people feel more than those that are employed, but in this current climate, we all feel... Will I have a job in a year's time? Will my pension last? My pension's laughable. It really is. It's, it's the most amusing thing in my life at the moment, I think. <laughs> we keep putting into it. And it's, it's like um, some sort of magic box. You keep putting money into it and it just disappears. <laughs> so the stuff of life can engender worry. So that we are able 
to give our Lord first call in our lives. That's the purpose. God is interested in us, but he is ultimately interested in the extension of his kingdom and in the demonstration of his glory. That does not mean we are less in his eyes. It does not mean that he loves us any less. It's just that our best is wrapped up in his glorious purposes. I would say that because we're human and we're short-term, a daily request is necessary. And I think it's important that Jesus says about it being our daily bread. It's important for us to remember constantly that we rely on him. Um, when I first came to this church, we had to do um, a series of discipleship with a few people, and I prayed about it, and, and I got the thing coming to my mind as the most important thing to, to, for people to understand first is thankfulness. And I thought, well, that seems a bit out of order, but I'll go with it. And as I worked through being thankful with the, the people that I was um, helping to disciple, I found it changed my attitudes. You know, I found that I got a choice in these things, either to be thankful or to see, you know, see the bad side. I see what's happening. Cynicism can seem wise, can't it? And yet I found that God's wisdom is far better to give thanks for things. I don't want you to be unreal in that. You know, if you're suffering from a, you know, from a dodgy leg, oh, I'll give you thanks for this pain. Oh, Lord. No, that, that's just unreal. That's just unreal. Lord, I give you thanks that you understand my pain. I give you thanks that you don't intend that I should always suffer. Even if I have to limp to the grave, I give you thanks, Lord, that there is a life to look forward to when decay and suffering will end. Let's pray. Father God, um, when I finish preaching, Lord, you know that I feel a bit empty and uh, as I've almost physically stepped down off a platform. Father God, I pray that you touch every heart. It's a bit like an offering, really, a bit like a sacrifice. I offer my words and the amount of time that I've done in preparation, which I've enjoyed, Lord. Thank you. I offer them sort of as a sacrifice, a very little thing, and say, would you add to it? Would you bless it? Lord, it's, it's the, 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 the elders and the leadership team's desire and yearning that the people here should see you more clearly. That they should feel your presence. I can't think of another way to put it. You know, we often are afraid of feelings, but there is a feeling in your presence, an understanding of you, a getting close to you, Lord. A recognition and, and, and of, of what you, Lord Jesus, have done for us. And that never ends. You know, we can understand, oh, written down, it's just a few sentences. You know, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And then later on, he, he came not to condemn the world, but to save it. And it's a few sentences, yet the exploration of that, Lord, we want that to become more exciting in our lives as we explore it more. So would you do that, Holy Spirit? We talked last week very feebly 
I tried to explain a bit about what you do, Holy Spirit, and uh, I wasn't very good at it. And yet, you are the counsellor. You are the one who knows the mind of the Father. And you explain things. As Jesus said, you explain things, Holy Spirit, to us. So come, Holy Spirit, and fill us afresh. It's another one of those daily things, because we're human and creatures of time. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to, be, to fill us afresh each day. Not that he departs at the end of the day, but we just need to do that. And we ask now, Holy Spirit, come and fill us. Have a moment or two of silence, and then Sam will start to lead us into worship again. <laughs>